0: Hi, and welcome back to the Wild EM Podcast. So picture this, it's a nice sunny winter day, little chilly, let's say minus 10 degrees Celsius, perfect for some sweet cross-country skiing. So you gear up, which is a workout in itself, as you pull harder than on the V7 boulder problem you did last night, just to get your legs into your super cool, super tight ski race outfit suit. Phew, good to go. The skiing is amazing blue skies sunshine as you fly through the tracks right into a tree not good you quickly assess the situation seems like your lower leg took most of the impact but you can't bear any weight on it so much for skiing out the ski trails are pretty popular though at this time of the day so sooner or later you'll probably run into someone who can help you out but not even a few minutes have passed and you start realizing that That super cool ski suit you put on this morning really isn't that warm. And furthermore, that minus 10 degrees celsius temperature really isn't that warm either now that you're lying in the snow. You start to shiver. You're bleeding heat. Hypothermia can happen very fast in these types of situations. So on today's episode, we are going to talk about identifying and treating hypothermia in the field. Now you may be thinking to yourself, is it really best to cover this topic in the middle of summer? And that's a great question that I am not going to address on today's show. So let's get going with... Definitions. Hypothermia is when your body's core temperature falls below 35 degrees Celsius. There are different ways to measure temperature. For this purpose, an oral temperature isn't reliable enough. Most of the time, a rectal temperature will do, but in some cases, even rectal temps can be inaccurate and we need to go towards more invasive measuring techniques such as esophageal temperature. Think about taking an oral temperature, but with your elbow at the patient's mouth to get in deep enough. If you repeat that last part in your mind, you know that if you start measuring people's temperature like this in the wilderness setting, you will not be invited to many of the upcoming trips and expeditions, so hold on to that thought. Another important definition is cold stress. Have you ever felt cold and started to shiver intermittently after exercising outside? Likely, you weren't hypothermic initially at that time, but rather cold stressed. Cold stress occurs when you feel cold and your body is attempting to rewarm yourself, but your core temperature is still over 35 degrees Celsius. So to summarize, we've just defined hypothermia as a temperature below 35 degrees Celsius. But knowing that it isn't practical to be taking temperatures on everyone in the wilderness setting, we will need to define and categorize hypothermia based on other clinical signs rather than temperature measurement. Classification. In the field, here is what you need to pay attention to. Number one, level of consciousness. Number two, presence of shivering. And number three, motor performance. Now full caveat here. We are going to go over a clinical classification for hypothermia in the field. This classification is not black or white, but should rather serve as a guideline. And later in the treatment section, we'll discuss how to approach some of these grey areas. Okay, so let's say you have a buddy who is fully alert but shivering, saying he's been feeling cold since you stopped skiing about 10 minutes ago to take a break, and you see him remove his backpack, open up some snacks, and down some warm fluids cold stress. Well, let's see. His level of consciousness is clearly alert. He is shivering and he seems to have intact motor control if he can still handle tearing up the wrappers of his snacks. He's likely cold stressed. Furthermore, in this case, he was exercising not long before taking a break. So this context paired with your rapid assessment makes it highly unlikely that he's hypothermic right now. But instead Say that your same buddy had been stopped for a while and didn't get any layers on because he forgot them at the trailhead. And he's complaining of being cold and can't seem to warm up for a while now. He's still alert and talking, but he's obviously shivering. And paying closer attention, he seems to be stumbling a little bit more on the skin track. Your initial thought is, well, of course he's struggling, he's a split boarder. Probably never is comfortable when both feet aren't locked in together. But then you start to wonder, could this be mild hypothermia so after cold stress comes mild hypothermia these patients will still be alert and shivering but somewhere along the spectrum from cold stress to mild hypothermia motor control starts to become impaired giving you the clue something more serious is going on here now motor control is not a definitive way to separate cold stress from mild hypothermia some people who are hypothermic might not display any motor control abnormalities. And conversely, if you ever ridden a bike on a cold day, it won't take long for your fingers to lose fine motor control without you becoming hypothermic per se. This is just an example outlining the limitations of the gross field assessment of motor control. But let's say you don't clue in on these early signs of hypothermia. Instead, you maintain laser focus on artfully laying down that skin track uphill, until your partner stumbles and falls into the snow. Hmm, suboptimal. So you head down to assess what's going on, and he's mumbling phrases that don't really make any sense. Definitely not normally alert. He stopped shivering and also stumbled and fell. Definitely abnormal motor control as well. Moderate hypothermia. So now your buddy is awake, but somewhat confused. He has obvious motor and balance issues, but has also stopped shivering this part is very important and we'll touch back on why in the treatment part. But patients like this one who have abnormal mentation and are no longer shivering have moderate hypothermia. Severe hypothermia. And finally, let's say that you are such a poor partner that you've only just now realized that your buddy fell into the snow hours ago in his spandex suit and you're just getting to him now, well as you approach he's probably going to look unconscious, and displaying no shivering, nor any signs of life for that matter. You immediately check for a pulse, which he has. After a focused assessment, you conclude hypothermia is causing his symptoms and therefore suspect that he has severe hypothermia. Severe hypothermic patients are also at risk for developing nasty heart rhythms, such as ventricular fibrillation, especially when their temperature drops below 28 degrees Celsius. So let's recap what we've just gone over here. First of all, cold stress. This patient is going to be alert, shivering, and has normal motor function. Mild hypothermia. This patient is also alert, also shivering, but starts displaying some abnormal motor control. Next, progressing to moderate hypothermia, these patients are awake, but confused, and they are no longer shivering, and they have obvious abnormal motor function. And finally, severe hypothermia, these patients are unconscious. Therefore, they are no longer shivering and they also have obvious abnormal motor control. Now, before we move on to the treatment, I will repeat that this classification is not clear-cut, but rather a spectrum of the same disease. Some patients will start having abnormal motor control even with temperatures over 35 degrees Celsius. Others may still have some shivering initially when they start to become confused. And others may take certain medications that lower the shivering threshold. Among others, examples of such drugs are alpha agonist medications such as clonidine or, more frequently, opiate-type medications such as morphine. Also, it's important to remember that a whole bunch of other stuff can cause confusion and to consider these alternatives before concluding that hypothermia is the cause of your patient's symptoms. TREATMENT First of all, scene safety. When you approach a potential hypothermic patient in need of your assistance, your safety and the safety of the other rescuers must always come first. So before jumping in, slow down, ensure that the scene is safe to enter, or maybe make the decision to briefly enter the scene to move the patient urgently to safer grounds if indicated. Second, cardiac arrest. When we're talking about cardiac arrest, we mean pulseless. And though this may seem obvious, It has been shown that even trained healthcare providers aren't great at feeling a pulse in the hospital, so let alone in the cold wilderness setting. Furthermore, patients with severe hypothermia likely will have a very slow heart rate because of the cold, making it even more difficult to be certain that they are pulseless. And finally, a severe hypothermic patient with a pulse will be at an extremely high risk of losing his pulse if CPR is started inappropriately, as their heart muscles are prone to developing bad arrhythmias if not handled gently. So for all these reasons, it's no surprise that in the Wilderness Medical Society guidelines, they recommend that the initial pulse check should take up to one whole minute in these patients. If no pulse is felt after a whole one minute, then start CPR. Okay, so you've been looking for that pulse for the past minute, and no pulse is felt. The patient is in cardiac arrest. So, should CPR be started here? Maybe you've heard the phrase, you're not dead until you're warm and dead, which is sometimes true, but sometimes you're also cold and dead, and no amount of warm will ever change that. So, let's dive a little deeper into this topic. At one extreme, there are patients who have obvious signs of death, such as decapitation, and if this happened outside during the winter, chances are they are also hypothermic by the time someone gets to them. Obviously, the issue here is not hypothermia, it's the decapitation. At the other extreme, there are patients who have survived outrageous numbers of hours of pre-hospital CPR before arriving to the hospital to eventually make a full recovery. So the crux is going to be determining if hypothermia caused the cardiac arrest because it is these patients who can fully recover from prolonged resuscitation efforts. Another way of seeing this is, imagine a patient suffers a heart attack or a major trauma outside and is found hypothermic and dead a few hours later. The reason his heart stopped beating is either a massive heart attack or the blood loss that he sustained from the trauma. And this irreversible damage to his heart or brain will not become better even if this patient is rewarmed because the initial injury causing his death cannot be corrected. But, if you imagine a second patient who, let's say, got lost or had no previous fatal injuries and progressively got hypothermic and eventually went pulseless. Now this is the patient who may have a chance of making a complete recovery because his brain, heart and other organs did not have any fatal disease when he was progressively getting colder and colder and thus re-warming may lead to a full recovery. Figuring out if hypothermia caused the arrest or rather happened after death is easier said than done in the field where you will not have all the facts and information available to you. A second important consideration is what does initiating CPR and attempting to rescue the patient entail? And by this, I mean, if you have a patient without any signs of injury who was reported lost and found off the trail, hypothermic and pulseless, and he's three minutes away from a potential landing zone for a chopper rescue, well, it makes sense to initiate resuscitation. But what if you find a patient with signs of head trauma? at the bottom of a cliff, who would need to be skied out for six hours only by yourself and another rescuer who is already getting cold stressed and exhausted, here attempting the rescue seems unlikely to be beneficial and very risky for you and your partner. It comes to show that there is no black or white answer here, but acknowledge that the decision to initiate resuscitation in the field needs to take into account how likely hypothermia is the cause of the cardiac arrest, as well as the risk for the rescuers. The importance of quality chest compressions with minimal pauses cannot be emphasized enough. This is the same for hypothermic patients. But if CPR cannot be performed continuously in order to evacuate the patient, the Wilderness Medicine Guideline Society on Hypothermia states that it is acceptable to do intermittent chest compressions with a minimum of 5 minutes on and 5 minutes off. This recommendation is made on the basis of a case report published in the Critical Care Medicine in 2014. In this article, a hypothermic patient survived after cardiopulmonary resuscitation for over 5 hours, which also included intermittent chest compressions. Understand that the level of evidence to support this claim is very weak, but that in extreme circumstances, this strategy may be employed. Third, if not in cardiac arrest... Avoid cardiac arrest. Now, if your patient is not in cardiac arrest, your main goal will be not to cause cardiac arrest. Although this sounds kind of funny, as we mentioned earlier, patients in moderate to severe hypothermia are at risk of cardiovascular collapse and appropriate steps need to be taken to prevent this from happening. First, patients in severe hypothermia are at risk of developing life-threatening heart rhythms, such as ventricular fibrillation. To avoid this, you need to handle these patients very gently and avoid any unnecessary movements. Second, patients in moderate hypothermia are at risk of deteriorating because of core temperature afterdrop. Core temperature afterdrop happens when a patient's limb perfusion increased, which leads to cold blood from their periphery to travel back to their core and further worsen their hypothermia. This can happen, for example, when a patient's limbs are moved, either himself actively or passively by the rescuers, when the patient is asked to sit, stand, or ambulate. In 1985, Romit and all published an article in the Journal of Applied Physiology showing that the afterdrop could be as high as a drop of 5 degrees Celsius in certain people. Now, in this study, this impressive level of afterdrop was observed after patients were immersed up to their neck in 40 degrees Celsius water. Though this is likely not the magnitude of afterdrop that you can expect to see in the field, the reasoning remains that afterdrop exists in the field and efforts should be made to avoid this to further worsen your patient's hypothermia. So how do we avoid afterdrop from becoming an issue? The strategy here will be to rewarm your patient first and after 30 minutes of rewarming to reassess the clinical state to decide at that point if he or she is alert and deemed safe to attempt standing and moving without risk of an afterdrop. 4. Avoid heat loss and rewarming. Now that the rescuers are safe, your patient has a pulse, and you've avoided any unnecessary moving, you need to reduce any further heat loss. This can be achieved with a quote-unquote burrito wrap around the patient. Those specific techniques may vary. This idea behind this wrap is that you want, from the outside in, a tarp or vapor barrier, then the insulation layer, and inside the insulation layer, a second vapor barrier. The outside vapor barrier serves to protect the patient and also the insulation layers from the outside elements. Just inside is the insulation layer. This is often comprised of a sleeping bag, any down or synthetic insulation jackets that can be spared, and some sort of ground insulation to isolate the patient from the ground. Finally. Inside the insulation layer, another vapor barrier serves to protect the insulation from becoming wet by contact with either the patient or any of their body fluids that may need to be evacuated during the rescue. With this in mind, if you have an extra garbage or plastic bag, holes can be cut out to create a makeshift diaper for the patient in attempt to further protect the insulation layers from becoming damp and keep the patient warmer. For patients who are still shivering, this is an excellent way to rewarm them, and it can increase their core temperatures by up to 3 or 4 degrees per hour. In addition to the wrap that we've just described, shivering is an excellent way to produce heat, but requires a lot of calories, so it's important to feed patients to give them some high carb foods or liquids. Warm fluids may also help here, especially with the mental aspect of survival, although they are unlikely to provide by themselves any significant core rewarming. For patients who are not shivering, well, these are harder to rewarm. In this case, it is also important to wrap these patients to prevent any further heat loss, but because they aren't shivering, they will not be able to rewarm by themselves as they are no longer generating any heat. Now, there are commercial devices available that can generate external heat to rewarm. But since I don't have any personal experience with these and it is unlikely that you will carry these bulky items with you unless you're in a professional organization, we're going to focus on some solutions with gear that you may have handy with you. In 2009, Lundgren and all published a paper in the Journal of Pre-Hospital Emergency Care on field rewarming strategies. In this very interesting paper, the authors took healthy volunteers and measured their core temperatures while also giving them IV medications to suppress any shivering. They then placed these patients in a sleeping bag with a 4-liter MSR water bag filled with water at 55 degrees Celsius over the patient's chest. By doing so, they first off achieved a small afterdrop in the patient's core temperature. Meaning, if you were to use no external heat source, the patient's core temperature would drop 2.2 degrees Celsius as they rewarmed, compared to only 1.6 degrees Celsius with the external heating source. Furthermore, the external heat source generated significantly better rewarming, achieving an increase in core body temperature of 0.7 degrees Celsius per hour compared to only 0.1 degrees celsius per hour without any external heat source. A few things to note from this paper. First of all, the water in the bag was at a temperature of 55 degrees celsius, and this is important because if the water is too hot, it can cause burns to your patient. For this reason, the water was also replaced every 20 minutes as it would tend to cool off. Logistically, this is more complicated in the wilderness setting though. Furthermore, I assume the study, and the rewarming was conducted inside, though the ambient temperatures were not described in the paper, making me wonder if applying this strategy in a cold environment would mean I would need to change the warm water even more frequently, making it even that much more harder. Other research has shown some patients developing burns, even with lukewarm water, so really important to keep an eye out over the skin where you're applying the warm water bags to avoid any further injuries. And to finish off rewarming, what about direct body contact to rewarm? In 1994, Gessbret and all published a paper in the Journal of Applied Physiology looking into this question. Their results show that direct body rewarming was no better than shivering alone in patients with mild hypothermia, So it is definitely not to be used for patients who are shivering as it is no better and logistically much more complicated and can even put rescuers who are attempting to rewarm the patient at risk of developing hypothermia. Now, this does not answer the question, though, if this technique could be used effectively in a patient with more severe hypothermia who is no longer shivering. But again, I think as a rescuer, you need to carefully weigh the risks of attempting this direct body rewarming in the field as to not create more patience. Okay, so what to make of all this discussion on rewarming and avoiding heat loss? Well, a lot of what you are going to do will depend on the gear you have available. On a typical multi-day trip, likely you're going to have some tarps, sleeping bags, and hopefully a stove to help work things out. For most day trips though, you likely won't. What I'll carry around on a winter day trip is a small puffy jacket, a Sam splint which can also be unfolded to sit on and create some sort of ground isolation, some carbohydrates, as well as a lightweight boffy bag. A boffy bag is a small tarp with an elastic band around the ends which can easily be brought around your group of people to isolate them from the outside weather. Having used the boppy bag personally many times, as well as during rewarming simulations in the field, I've been really impressed with how warm it gets inside the bag, on top of shielding you from wind and precipitation. So by bringing these few items that we've just discussed, it doesn't take that much space, but it can really make a lot of difference out in the field. Conclusion Things can happen fast in the wilderness, especially with regards to losing heat in the cold environment ditch the thermometer and be able to identify hypothermia based on a clinical classification in the field. Mild hypothermia is an alert patient who is shivering and may show abnormal motor control. Moderate hypothermia is a verbal but confused patient who is no longer shivering and has abnormal motor control. And finally, severe hypothermia is an unconscious or more profoundly altered patient who is not shivering. Once hypothermia is identified, remember to treat the more severe cases with care. Be cognizant of the afterdrop effect that can occur in these patients and keep them horizontal and moving as little as possible until rewarming can be achieved. Rewarming is achieved by preventing further heat loss with the quote unquote burrito wrap we've discussed, as well as adding an external heat source with warm water, especially in patients who are no longer shivering. Remember to monitor your patients closely and reassess until it is deemed safe for them to attempt standing and exercise to evacuate. Alright, that's it for this month on the Wild EM Podcast. Thanks for tuning in and remember to keep your crampons in the ice.